Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Man, as we come into this new year, we're going to be talking in uh, the next couple weeks and really actually started last week uh, about seeking things above. And in Colossians, it talks about not seeking things of earth, but seeking things that are above. And uh, that's going to kind of be our focus. And man, as we lean into a new year, can I just encourage you all to kind of lean into church? and just engage. I think this season, it's so easy. There's so many distractions. There's so many things that pull us out. Uh, almost everyone I know has had to be in quarantine at some point. And I feel like when you, you're trying to get in a rhythm as you head into the fall and then you quarantine for two weeks and then something changes and then you go on vacation then you have to come back in quarantine. And it just, it feels like, man, there's been this in and out of church. And for a lot of people, they've had to pull back. And, and for a lot of people, for health reasons, they've had to pull back. But I just want to encourage you to, to, to re-engage, um, whether that means jump back into a serve team, jumping into a small group in February when we kick those back up, but leaning into it, our, our equipping nights and our training courses that we've got coming up in the month of January, our leadership equip in January 23rd. Um, but as I was reading this week, or really over the last couple weeks, just want to encourage you, one of the statistics that's coming out of this COVID season, and this happens every time there's uh, something like this in our world, is statistically, it's actually proven that engaging in spiritual community is good for your mental health. That every stat shows that uh, the, the depression, um, that anxiety, that stress have skyrocketed over the last year. And one of the things that tempers that and keeps us in a healthy place is being engaged in spiritual community. And so I could call you and just say, hey, we need to be engaged in spiritual community because it's obedient to the, the word of God and it's obedient to Christ and it glorifies and honors God. But even just the data points say that this is good for us. And so I just wanna encourage you as we enter into this new season, uh, just to just to lean in and get engaged and reconnect if you've drifted at all and uh, find a place to call church home and really plug in. So let me pray for us to that end. Heavenly Father, we come and we just ask that you would make us healthy and whole people. Father, that you would be doing the work of renewing us from the inside out, that you'd be forming us, that you'd be shaping our lives, that we would uh, be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would look more like Jesus. Father, as we engage in our city that we would be salt and light, that they would see Jesus in us and the way in which we live, that you would be glorified and honored in this church and this people in this year. Father, we, we thank you for your grace. We all come as messy people who have mixed hearts and have things in our hearts that need to be corrected, things we need to set aside and things we need to refocus on. And so Father, in this season, I just pray that your spirit would be at work. And Father, that you'd speak through Chase and that you'd encourage us uh, this morning in our pursuit of Christ, that we would seek things above. Father, we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Hope everyone had a good Christmas and New Year's and enjoying all the snow. It feels like we live in Denver or New York City or something like that, not Oklahoma City with all the snow, doesn't it? Uh, by a show of hands, who likes to make New Year's resolutions? Anybody? 
Might be a few of you online as well, see some shaking of heads. I'm not really a big New Year's resolutions person either, um, but if you think about it, they really do make sense. The new year is the perfect time to reflect on the past year and identify what was good, what wasn't good, and then as you move into the new year, you identify the changes that you need to make in order to get the results that you want. So if you want to lose weight, you make a plan for eating healthier and exercising more. If you want to have more money to spend on family vacations or hobbies, then you make a budget and you work on sticking to it. If you want to lose, use technology less or read more books, then you make rules for putting your phone away in the evenings or uh, a day of the week to turn off the TV and open a book. And of course, we could make these big life changes at any point in the year, but something about the new year in particular has always drawn us as a time of reflection and a time for making changes as we move into the next year. And so that's where I want to go this morning as well. We're not going to make Christian New Year's resolutions or anything like that, but I do want to call us to a time of reflection and refocusing when it comes to our walk with Jesus. After all, we do this and we make resolutions for healthy living, for money management, for how we spend our time, but how often do we sit down and deeply reflect on our Christian discipleship? How often do we ask questions like, what's going well? In what areas of my walk with Jesus do I see God's grace? What areas aren't growing well? Where do I need to grow as a follower of Jesus? And what changes do I need to make in order to grow? And so to help us reflect and refocus this morning, we're going to look at Colossians 3. Last week, Jeff preached from Hebrews 12 in our online service. Hopefully, you were able to join us for that. And the big idea from that passage was that if you want to run the race of your life well in 2021, you need faith in Jesus. And this week, we're going to build on that a little bit because the big idea from Colossians 3 is that those who have faith in Jesus should be characterized by new life in him. So here in this passage, we'll see Paul describing new life in Christ by saying that faith in Jesus results in at least four things, a new mindset, a new lifestyle, a new community, and a new purpose. And as we dig into each of these things, we'll see that these things should be true of followers of Jesus. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are true right now. Maybe they were true for you at one time, but as you've gotten older and your faith has kind of waned a bit and and the cares of this world have really taken over. Or maybe you've grown up in church your whole life, but as we look at this passage, you'll see that these things really have never been true of your life. You've never experienced this new life that comes from faith. And this is where for all of us, I want us to dig in and do some reflection and examination of our lives. I want us to ask questions like, Has my faith in Christ led to this new life? What aspects of this new life are evident in my life? What aspects of new life in Christ are lacking in my life? Where can I celebrate God's grace over this past year? And what changes do I need to make in the new year in order to better live my life for God's glory? These are the questions that we should be asking of this text in Colossians 3, asking of ourselves and asking as we reflect on our discipleship in the new year. 
Now, just a quick disclaimer, we don't have time to look at every single thing in this chapter. If we were preaching through the book of Colossians as a church, we'd probably spend two or maybe even three weeks just on this text this morning. So this is going to feel much more like a big picture overview than deep verse-by-verse exposition. But I think it'll be really helpful for us because in this chapter, Paul gives us this great picture of what faith should look like, what it should produce in us as we have new life in Christ. So let me read Colossians 3, 1 through 17, and we'll get started. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the first thing that Paul says about our new life in Christ is that faith in Jesus results in a new mindset. We see that right off the bat, beginning in verse 1, as Paul says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Some other translations say since instead of if. They say since you've been raised with Christ. And that's really what Paul's saying here. Since you, Christian, have been raised with Christ, and you have, you have this new heavenly mindset. So seek the things above. In verse 2, Paul contrasts the things above with the, the things below, saying, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. So what Paul's saying is because we've died to sin with Christ and been raised to new life in Christ, we should have this new heavenly mindset about us. This is similar to what Paul says in Philippians 3 about Christians being citizens of heaven. Christians should not be at home in this world or primarily focused on the things of this world because our citizenship is elsewhere. Our mindset is new and it's in Christ. Let's back up for just a minute, though, and see what led up to Paul writing this. Why did he need to write this to the Christian, the Colossian Christians? And if we went back to chapter 2, we'd see that Paul is confronting two errors that the church was making there. The first is that they were looking to worldly philosophies instead of Jesus. 
And the second is that they were trusting in religion for their righteousness instead of Jesus. Now today, we probably aren't looking to the same first century philosophies that they were trusting in, but I bet we could think of some contemporary examples of worldly philosophies that we are tempted to trust in. Uh, One that comes to mind is the American dream. How many Christians in our city do you know who are more concerned with getting to the top and buying that dream house and having the perfect kids than they are with knowing Jesus? Another worldly philosophy could be any of the popular health philosophies of our day, like doing yoga or eating vegan or using essential oils. And of course, there's nothing wrong with those things. We're a fan of all of those things in our house. But many people in our world see these lifestyle choices as like a secret key to unlocking the good life instead of looking to the one who gives these gifts to us. Politics could be another contemporary example of uh, philosophies of the world that we're tempted to trust in. This has been painfully evident over the past year as Christians on both sides of the aisle use their party's platform as their lens for interpreting the world instead of Jesus. I think we could easily list 10 or 20 more things here, but here's the point. We are just as tempted as the Colossians were to look to the worldly philosophies of our day instead of Jesus. And Paul would write this, Colossians 3, this chapter to us as well. The second error that they were making is that they were trusting in religion for salvation instead of Jesus. So Paul rebukes them in chapter 2 for thinking that certain foods would make them unclean, or thinking that observing the Sabbath would make them clean, or that those who had a certain mystical religious experience were actually the only true Christians. And again, we probably aren't tempted to make those same exact mistakes, but I bet we could think of some contemporary examples that we are tempted to make. Uh, Church attendance is an easy one. How easy is it for us to feel good about ourselves and kind of soothe our conscience as we come to church? And how many people in our city have gone to church their entire lives, and that forms the basis for their foundation with God instead of Jesus's work on the cross? Good works are another thing. Of course, as good Protestant Christians, we say that salvation is by faith alone, but then we strive and strive to obey God and beat ourselves up when we don't and look down on others when they sin. And that just betrays the fact that we have this self-righteousness in us that wants to trust in ourselves for salvation. Again, we are just as tempted as the Colossians were to look to our own righteousness for salvation instead of Jesus's righteousness. So what is it for you? Maybe it wasn't one of those things, but what what worldly philosophies are you tempted to look to instead of Christ for understanding the world? What acts of religion are you trusting in instead of Jesus for salvation? We all have something here that we're tempted to look at, and this is the context in which Paul writes Colossians 3 and says, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. In other words, Paul's saying, stop stooping down to seek wisdom and comfort in the worldly philosophies of this world. Stop relying on impossible to maintain religious rules and traditions and look at Jesus. Set your mind less and less on the things of the world and more and more on Christ because your faith has produced this new life and your life is now completely wrapped up in Jesus. Now, here's something really cool about verse 1. After Paul says, seek the things that are above, he adds, 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And Paul could easily have just stopped with seek the things that are above. We, we would get the point. He's talking about having a heavenly mindset. He's talking about looking at Jesus and not at the world. So I think it's worth asking ourselves, why did he include this? What, what's the point of the rest of the sentence? And I think it's because Paul wants to remind us that right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and that has two major implications for us. The first implication from Jesus' location at the Father's right hand is that forgiveness of sins is available in him. We see this connection all over the New Testament, but I'll just read a couple of examples. The first is uh, Romans 8.34, where Paul says, "'Who is to condemn us?' Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Also in Hebrews chapter one says, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Then later Hebrews chapter 10 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The New Testament authors directly link Jesus' atoning work on the cross and his sitting down at God's right hand. So why does that matter? What does that mean for us? Well, it means that we can rest confidently this morning because Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. We have forgiveness of sins available in him and freedom from guilt and shame. Those things are not available in church attendance or in good works or in man-made religion, but they are available in the one sitting at the Father's right hand. And so Paul calls us to set our minds there. Jesus' location at the Father's right hand also means that Jesus has dominion over everything in this world. We see that in 1 Peter 3.22, which says, Jesus has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Jesus is in heaven right now on his throne with every single thing here on earth in subjection to him. Of course, what we see and experience is not the fullness of Jesus's rule. There's still sin and suffering in the world, and he will return to to eradicate all of that and make all things new. But even now, we can have confidence and comfort that Jesus is the sovereign Lord in control of this world. It's as if in Colossians 3, Paul's asking us, how could we look anywhere else? How, do you really want to trust in worldly ideologies for understanding the world or in man-made religion for salvation when you can trust in the one sitting in the throne room of heaven right now? So friends, only in Jesus do we find forgiveness of sins Only in Jesus do we have one who uses the popular philosophies of this world as his footstool. So as we move into a new year, let's let's embrace our new mindset in Christ by setting our minds more and more on him and less and less on the things of this world. Well, the second aspect of new life that Paul describes in Colossians 3 is a new lifestyle. There's so much that we could dig into in these next 10 verses, and here's where we really have to just do an overview. Let me give you the main point, and then we'll uh, make a couple observations. The main point of these next 10 verses or so is that faith in Jesus results in, it leads to a new lifestyle. Paul makes this point by telling us that we should put to death sinful behavior in our lives and put on Christ-like behavior. I think Paul's hinting at at a clothing analogy here, and I think that's helpful for us to consider as well. 
When we go to a wedding or a funeral or graduation, we dress up more than most of us do on a regular basis. So before we leave for that special occasion, we take off whatever we're wearing around the house, maybe sweats and a t-shirt, and we put on our suit, our dress, our nicer outfit. The reason we do that is because the event that we're going to demands that we change our clothes. And in the same way, Paul's saying that those who have faith in Jesus, those who have been raised with Christ, whose lives are wrapped up in him, need to make a change as well. We don't have to change our clothes, obviously, but we change the way that we live. Certain behaviors, according to Paul, and some of the ones he lists here are uh, sexual immorality, anger, lying. These things are not fitting for new life in Christ. While other behaviors like compassion, humility, and patience are fitting. Now remember what Paul's already said, and, and the New Testament reiterates over and over again. These behaviors do not form the foundation for our standing before God. They're not our means of salvation. But what Paul is saying is that these behaviors flow out of right standing with God. Faith in Christ leads to a new lifestyle in Christ. So as we reflect in this new year, let me ask you, what efforts have you been making to put on this new lifestyle in Christ? Have you been battling against sinful behavior in your life or simply giving into it? What godly characteristics have you been trying to cultivate in your life? J.C. Ryle, who was a famous 19th century Christian, talks about the new lifestyle in Christ like this. Ryle says, there are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians, but you never see any fight about their religion, of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity is not the Christianity of the Bible. It is not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and his apostles preached. True Christianity is a fight. So what's Ryle saying there? He's saying that, that following Jesus is a constant battle between your old way of life and your new way of life. And many people who call themselves Christians don't really experience Christianity like this because they've simply added Christianity as something else they tack on to their life instead of making Jesus their king and lord of their life and trying to live this new life in him. And true Christianity, according to Ryle and according to Paul here in Colossians 3, is actually a fight. It's a battle, a constant battle to put to death our old way of life and put on godliness. So how's the battle going for you? As we reflect on 2020 and refocus on 2020, for 2021, let's do battle against sin and strive to cultivate Christ-likeness in our lives. The third aspect of new life in Christ that we see in Colossians 3 is a new community. I don't know if you noticed, but so much of the emphasis on the sinful behavior and godly characteristics in this passage is outwardly focused. It's focused on others. So anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, these are outward sins that you commit against other people. And then compassion, kindness, humility, patience, forgiveness, love, are all Christ-like qualities that are practiced towards other people. And then right in the middle of this section is verse 11, which is intensely focused on community. And that's where Paul says that here in this church, in this new community that you've been brought into, there is not Greek or Jew. And this speaks to race. So we could say today there's not white, black, or brown. 
There's not uncircumcised or circumcised, which is speaking to religions. We might say those who grew up in the church and those who didn't. There's not barbarian or Scythian, which speaks to social status. We might say those who are from New York and those who are from rural Oklahoma. There's not slave or free, which speaks to financial status. We might say the rich or the poor, but Christ is all in this new community and, and in all. So in other words, another one of Paul's main points in this chapter is that faith in Jesus results in a new community. Without Christ, we, we might have communities of work friends who all do the same job, or maybe communities of friends who all have the same hobbies and we like to, to do those things together. Maybe we have communities of people who are all the same age and have kids that are all the same age. We have all these same experiences. Or maybe we just keep to ourselves and don't really have much community at all. But in Christ, we have this new community that we don't choose. It's made up of people who don't look like us and don't think like us and don't act like us. Maybe the only thing they have in common with us is that they have faith in this same Jesus. How many people in our city do you know who identify as Christian but aren't committed to any sort of local church or community like this? It's really just normal for us in the West. But let's stop and think about something for a minute. Is it possible to obey God's commands that he's giving us in this chapter? Like, do not lie to one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Put on love towards one another. Is it possible to obey those commands if our, if our faith is just between us and God and doesn't include any other Christians? Or even if it includes other Christians, but only Christians that we really, really, really like and get along with well? No, of course not. We can't forgive others or love others if we have little to no interaction with others. And Paul really even takes this a step further and tries to make us uncomfortable because in verse 13, he says that Christians should be bearing with one another. That's not really a word that we use much anymore. So when do we bear with people? We've got some newlyweds in our church, and hopefully if I asked them how their honeymoon went, they wouldn't say, well, we did, we did a good job of bearing with one another. No, that's not when we, we bear with people that we don't get along with. We bear with people that we don't like spending time with. And Paul knows that those people will exist here in this church, and he doesn't say, go find another church. He says, bear with them, bear with them. Why? What's the motivation to treat people like this? It's Jesus' bearing with us, Jesus' forgiving us, and Jesus' loving us. Paul ends verse 13 by saying, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. One of my favorite books is Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And here's what Bonhoeffer says about, uh, about this community and sin in the community. Bonhoeffer writes, when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Thus the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary, which means life-giving or encouraging because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but by the one word and deed, which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. 
So here's what Bonhoeffer is saying. He's saying that when a Christian sins against me, instead of becoming angry and feeling like I've been wronged, it should actually be life-giving to us, life-giving, because it gives us an opportunity to remind ourselves that neither my actions nor the actions of my brother and sister can condemn us because in Christ we've been forgiven. And therefore I forgive my brother and sister and rejoice, rejoice even after being sinned against because we're both forgiven in Christ. Talk about countercultural. So how do we live like this? What, what, what does it take to have an attitude like this? Well, verses 15 and 16 tells us. Paul writes, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So in these verses, we see that we need the peace of Christ to rule us and the word of Christ to dwell in us. So first, the peace of Christ. And what Paul has in mind here is not the objective peace that we have with God because of Christ. It's true that in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins and we have peace with God. But the context here is on living in harmony and and loving others. So he's really talking about peace as in the absence of hostility or conflict. And what he says is that we are never going to forgive instead of hold a grudge. We're never going to turn the other cheek instead of seek revenge. We're never going to truly care about the spiritual well-being of others if the peace of Christ is not the ruling factor in our lives. And this word rule has the idea of an umpire or referee. So in sports, the umpire or the referee is the one that's governing what's, in, what's happening on the court. They're, they're in charge. They're ruling over the game. And Paul says that this is how the peace of Christ should be in your life. Instead of being governed by the dog-eat-dog, finger-pointing, insisting on my own way, ways of the world, be governed, be ruled by the peace of Christ. And as this peace dwells in individual Christians, it extends out and leads to harmony within the church. All we have to do is look at social media to see what an absence of the peace of Christ breeds, don't we? But as Christians who have new life, we should be characterized, we should be ruled by the peace of Christ. The second thing Paul mentions here is that we need the word of Christ as well. And most commentators believe that what Paul has in mind here is not Christ's actual words, which we might interpret as the Bible, but the word about Christ, the message about Christ, the gospel, in other words. And so what Paul is saying is that in order to live this new life out, that comes from faith in Christ, we need the gospel message to dwell in us richly. We need the whole gospel message. Sometimes as Christians, we limit the gospel to, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven. And those things are true, that that's the heart of the gospel, but in reality, the gospel is far richer and more all-encompassing than that. The gospel message has implications for every single area of our lives, As Christians, we should take this message about Christ and uh, apply it to our work, the way we spend our time, our money, our health, our families, the way we see nature, the way we entertain ourselves, the way we rest, literally anything and everything that we are, that we do, or that we think about, the gospel message has something to say about that. What does this have to do with community? Remember, that's, that's the context that Paul's writing in here. 
Well, now this passage gets really surprising for us if it hasn't already. Because how do we let the gospel message dwell in us richly? We might expect Paul to say, you read your Bible, you pray every day, and you go to church on Sundays. But what does he actually say? He says that this happens by teaching and admonishing one another. So one of the main ways that I apply the gospel to my life is by living in community with other Christians and allowing them to apply it with me. That makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I want my marriage, my finances, my sins and struggles to be personal things between me and God, not between the other people in the church, but I also want the word of Christ to speak into those things. And Paul tells us that one of the main ways that's going to happen is by other brothers and sisters in Christ speaking them into my life. This is really an incredible picture of Christian community that I would guess almost none of us have really fully and truly experienced. But if Paul were standing here today, I know he would tell us that if we really want deep, meaningful life in Christ, we're going to have to live in community like this with other Christians. It's not going to happen otherwise. And so as we move into 2021, let me just ask you, how can you press into Christian community more deeply than you did last year? And I know COVID is still a thing, that's gonna be a barrier here, but what are some other barriers that maybe you can actually move? Maybe you need to clear some space in your schedule to have time for Christian community like this. Maybe you're already in a community like this, a small group or something, but the, the next step for you would be to allow others in, to be more vulnerable with others, or to go out and speak the gospel into the lives of other people. What's your next step in this next year? We would love for you to join one of our redemption small groups if you haven't already. Uh, we're on a break right now, but those will be launching again in the 1st of February, and the signups will be up in a couple of weeks. So be watching out for those. We, we would love to have you in one if you're not already. And if you're already in a group, be, be asking, how can I teach and admonish others in my group in this new year? How can I allow others to do the same for me? I know this makes us uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable, but it's for our own spiritual good. And as we evaluate our new life in Christ in this new year, one of the main things that we should be evaluating is our participation in Christian community. All right, let's end here on verse 17. And whatever you do, Paul writes, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we see that faith in Jesus, new life in Christ, results in a new purpose. Everything we say, everything we do, every single thing is an opportunity to worship our creator. Let that be encouraging for you this morning. If you're a stay-at-home mom who cares for children all day long, when you do so in Christ, you're not just caring for children, you're worshiping God. If you own a business or you're a CEO, when you run your company well and employ people and uh, produce goods or services that lead to the flourishing of our community, you're worshiping Christ. If you don't like your job, when you do it well and love your coworkers, you're worshiping God. If you're single and you long to get married, but you can find contentment in Christ, you're not just finding contentment for your own sake, you're worshiping God. No matter who you are, all of us, we can worship God by enjoying a good meal or by doing the dishes afterwards. 
We can worship God when we read our Bibles and when we watch a good movie. For non-Christians, the good movie or the good meal is just that. It's a good movie, it's a good meal. Doing the dishes is just a minor inconvenience that has to be done every single day. A job that seems meaningless really is just meaningless. But in Christ, we've been given new purpose. In Christ, all of life, all we do is worship. It all matters. All of life is an opportunity to live out this new life that we've been given and as preparation for the future life that we'll receive when Jesus returns. What grace that is. I know it's hard to have this perspective when it comes to the mundane, ordinary things that we do every single day, but it's also so life-giving if we can have this perspective. Everything we do has purpose and is an opportunity for worship. So let's live our lives this way in 2021. Well, I'm going to pray for us in just a minute, and then we'll have our normal time of reflection. Um, But really, this type of reflection on your whole Christian walk and looking back at 2020 and looking forward to 2021 really needs more than a minute or two um, of reflection. So we've created something called our yearly discipleship plan, our yearly discipleship plan. It's on our website now. Um, This is a tool that asks probing questions about your walk with Jesus and um, helps you identify evidences of grace in your life and areas where um, that you can work on in the new year. This is up on the website now as you can print it off and fill it out or you can um, do a digital form easily on your phone or computer, anything like that. It's really our desire that this becomes a yearly tool that is really life-giving for you and helps you in your discipleship. We would love to have you do that. Well, friends, I'll pray for us, but let me just say, as we move into 2021, let's seek Jesus and may we enjoy deep, meaningful life in him. Let me pray. Father, you are everything to us. There's nothing here on earth that we desire but you. There's nothing that will satisfy us except for you. We just pray that you very simply would help us to focus on you, that you would uh, allow us to experience new life in 2021 by your grace. You would help us uh, give praise you for evidences of grace in our life in this past year and that you would help us identify ways that we can grow in this coming year, that we may better worship you in response to what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this Redemption Sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.